for me, I really like to practice aggressively is the word that I like to say. But it just means that for the most part, every contest that I drop into, I've landed my run at least four or five times on that day. So I know that I'm capable of it. I know the consistency is there. And it's more just a matter of reining in my nerves so that I'm able to perform the way that I know that I can. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to season two of our podcast, Partners in Time. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope you had a great break. And I also hope you enjoyed our sort of intermediate creators time sessions on Clubhouse with Abraxas Higgins. Hope you enjoyed the format. Hope you enjoyed the sessions. And now I'm back in the hot seat, as it were, uh, as your host for Partners in Time. And it's time to kick off the new season, the new year with no other than the American Chinese free skier Eileen Gu. Now, Eileen is an exceptional talent. She started her career very, very early on, worked her way up from different sports, I think cross-country running, into freestyle skiing, half-pipe, slope-style, park, big air, everything that goes into the world of free skiing. She's then won a couple of titles at the X Games and is now building her Olympic career, culminating in Beijing 2022. And as you may have seen, just before uh, the, the holidays, she already managed to win two World Cup titles, one in Big Air in the US, the other one in Halfpipe, and is now really gearing up her campaign for Beijing 2022. Eileen, hi, how are you? Hello, how are you? I'm super excited to be here and to talk to you today. Um, I recently got to do my first shoot in France with IWC, so that was really exciting. Um, And yes, really excited to chat with you today. We are super excited as well. But first things first, where where are you? Where are you today? I mean, it's it's sort of a start of the season, I guess. Are you, you in the snow? Yes, I am. I am currently in Austria. I actually went skiing today. Um, I got off the hill about two hours ago. (laughs) Yes. Oh, brilliant. How's the snow? It's good. Um, It's a glacier, so it stays pretty much year round. But I have to say this year, it is less snow than last year. Last year was full winter by this time. You could definitely still see some dirt. So you're not missing out on too much yet. But how, how does it feel to be back on the skis? How long was your summer break? My summer was long-ish. I would say I left my last time skiing. I was in May, May. So I had June, July, August mm. off, and then I did airbagging for most of September, yeah. and then I started snow late September, September twenty-second. Brilliant. And just to, to to fill in our sort of not so free skiing familiar listeners, when you talk about airbagging, you don't mean driving cars into walls and <laughs> seeing what happens. You are you know, presumably that would not jumping. Be super fun. <laughs> <laughs> you you are uh, taking your, your your skis off a jump and then landing on an airbag, I presume. Correct. Um, it pretty much, I would describe it as a giant slip and slide. How, how is the difference for you? I mean, obviously you have to do all sorts of training um, from going to, from really natural conditions up on, on the slopes and the mountains to these kind of more artificial environments. Does it feel completely different when you ride it or is it more or less the same process? Well, I actually have not competed on a scaffolding big air. Those oh, okay. are, in my opinion, kind of scary, but I mean, it, 
it is more or less the same because they do put a layer of snow over it, but it is definitely hard to calculate the angles when you're building it. Yeah. So on snow, you can kind of trial and error. You can do it once and then ask the riders how everything is and ask for some opinions and then rebuild it. But with the scaffolding, it's kind of one and done. So it's difficult to get perfect on the first try. Mm. No, absolutely. But maybe let's start there. Obviously, it's 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 um, you are Olympic qualified, right? You are going to Beijing, correct? Which is super exciting. Only place ever to host summer and winter Olympics all at once. Well, not all at once, but in the same 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 place. Um, and talking about free skiing, just talk us through it a little bit for for listeners who aren't that familiar with the sport. There's different disciplines along free skiing, uh, slopestyle, there's halfpipe. But uh, just to explain a little bit what it actually entails. Yeah, so I guess I will go through the three events that I compete in. Um, I am last season I was the only person who competed in all three disciplines. So that is slope style, big air, and half pipe. Slope style entails several jumps. Um, so those are features made out of snow where you ride up a ramp or airborne and you do a trick and then you land back on the snow. And then there are also a combination of rails. And so the rails can be anything from your typical handrail when you are walking down the stairs to a round rail to a down flat down rail to a rail that is higher than a bus stop and it's all over the place so you can get really creative on the size the shape um the length of the rails and then there's the number and the slope obviously but everything's always changing in slope style that's kind of the the name of the game in half pipe, however, it stays more or less the same because the shape is, well, it's a half pipe. Mm. So no matter where you go, the shape is the same. Sure, the length can change. Sure, the angle of the slope, the pitch can change a little bit. But for for the most part, your run or the tricks that you do in it stay the same. Whereas in slope style, you kind of go on the fly. You'll show up at a location, look at it, and then decide what you're going to do. And then in big air, it's just one big jump. And then you get a few tries, you get three tries to land two different tricks. So that's kind of the premise of the shape <laughs> of the three different events that I do. Yeah. No, and, and, and just to put this a little bit into perspective. So, I mean, these half pipes are <laughs> scarily high and big. Huh? I mean, think they are 22 feet yes, to be and, exact. Yeah. And I think there's, again, I just know this from the snowboarders, but there's, there's people who do like seven meters clear off the top of the half pipe and when, when they go big and it's, it's, it's quite scary. And actually it was, I think a couple of seasons ago, um, a ski instructor, um, I booked like a little freestyle session, you know, that's, that's me sort of classic downhill skier, just getting a first sort of taste and, and just actually going down the half pipe without getting any air whatsoever. It's, it's, it's absolutely scary how vertical these walls actually are when you're up there and when you get to that sort of zero gravity moment and trying to turn 180 and come back down. And it's obviously, it's it's hard and icy. Huh? There's nothing soft about it. So it's, it's quite an unforgiving terrain, isn't it? Totally. The half pipe is, can be very firm. Um, it is 22 feet from the bottom to the top. And then obviously you do have to go out and the higher out you go, the higher you score. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of a self risk assessment to see how hard you can push it. And then of course there's also technicality style, um, variation of different kinds of spinning, different kinds of rotation, but everything factors into each other and plays upon each other. And that gives you your final score. So it's definitely scary. My 
first ski coach explained the half pipe as a giant blue run folded up. So if you <laughs> don't know how to ski pipe, you just kind of do it like you would ski a normal run. I guess you go up, you turn, you come down, and then you go higher and higher until that turn eventually goes above the lip and that turn becomes airborne. But, you know, baby steps. That, yeah, that's, that's, it sounds a lot more simple than it actually is. And what I always wonder is, obviously, you have to kind of string a routine together when you go down a half pipe or you go down your, your slope style park. Um, is this completely set in stone when you start at the top? Or do you react to what actually happens in the first couple of jumps? I mean, is, is there flexibility or do you know 100% what you're going to do no matter what? So you have your run plan and that ideally is what happens. Of course, sometimes mistakes can happen and it depends how big those mistakes are. Because for example, if you make a mistake and accidentally catch an edge and fall over, then it's kind of game over. If you fall, you fall. Mm. But let's say I was supposed to land forwards and I accidentally land switch or backwards. Well, maybe I anticipated that that was happening, that was going to happen, or that was an option to happen if I was struggling on that first trick during practice. And so I have maybe a plan B run in my head where I know, okay, if I'm going to land switch, then I'm going to adapt the following tricks to make this the best run it can be given the situation. So sometimes you kind of have to pivot in the middle, but for the most part, it's um, black and white. You either land it or you don't. Yeah, it's it's either coming together or it's sort of game over for that run, I suppose. And, and <laughs> do you get a feeling early on? I mean, I always wonder that. It's obviously, I mean, th these things, it is psychological as, as well as physical. Like when, when you go into your routine, do you feel quite early on whether it's going to flow, it's going to be a good one? Or is that really like anything can happen at any time? Well, that's a very good question because that is kind of the heart of what every competitor thinks about when they are pulling up to a contest. Normally we will get two days to compete or two days to train before the competition. So we get an opportunity to feel out the course, to try our tricks, to practice everything. And during that time, normally you get a pretty good sense of how consistent your run is mm. going. Um, people have different philosophies regarding that. You know, I know some people, especially with a lot of the boys they will choose to not do their full run altogether until the competition, but they will do all the different parts separately, maybe because it's too dangerous to try everything in practice, or maybe um, there's not enough time, or maybe they're focusing on something else. But I think with the really, really high level where you're pushing every single competition trick, it's difficult to link everything together during practice. And it's kind of one of those things where you hope it all comes together during the contest. And in that moment, I think you definitely have a sense of flow, of being in the zone, and you know if something's going to work or not. Um, otherwise, you just kind of have to take that chance. Yeah. For me, I really like to practice aggressively, is the word that mm. I like to say. But it just means that for the most part, every contest that I drop into, I've landed my run at least four or five times on that day. So I know that I'm capable of it. I know the consistency is there. And it's more just a matter of reining in my nerves so that I'm able to perform the way that I know that I can. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a major part of it when I when I think about the big O word as well. Let's talk briefly about the Olympics. Obviously, that's like a, a huge milestone in, in any athlete's career. And I always, I mean, I did a little bit of skiing when I was younger in terms of sort of trying to work up towards competitions and stuff. And I always find it, um, found it quite tricky to adjust your mind to the fact that you do 
all of these trainings, training runs, you do it perfectly like 999 times. And all that prep then comes down to a relatively short moment in the event when it counts, when it's all or nothing. It, how do you prepare yourself for that? How do you, you know, sort of, because you, you obviously know what you can do, you know what you're capable of, but it all has to come together sort of on the day. And there's not that many chances then. It's the, how do you deal with that psychologically? Yeah, you know, that not that the million dollar question? <laughs> I think that every athlete has their own way of approaching that. For me personally, it's it's a matter of having landed the run enough times that I know I just have to get out of my own head, that physically everything is there. Yeah. I just have to do what I've already done. I don't have to pull off a miracle for That's things true. to happen yeah. the way that I want them to. Yeah. That being said, I think that in competition, things are completely different from training. You overthink every minute detail if you don't have some kind of strategy with your own mind to control yourself, to understand what your trigger points are when you're competing and what strategies you have to combat those. So for me, when I was in ninth grade, I grew up running my whole life and running was everything to me. Mm. My cross country coach in ninth grade, when I was at the state championship meet, I was super, super nervous. And she said, Eileen, just remember when you're super nervous that the chemical in your brain for when you are fearful before a contest is actually the same chemical for excitement. And it's just your brain labeling it in a negative connotation. Mm. And I think that that little bit of information and little piece of advice really changed my whole mindset towards dealing with pressure because all of a sudden I regained control. I thought, okay, I don't feel nervous because I'm out of control. I feel excited because I have worked so hard and I can't wait to show the world what I've been doing all this time. And I can't wait to let this be the culmination of all my efforts. So I think that that thought process and that conscious shift into something that is more, um, more in your control yeah. really changed everything for me. Something more positive. Yeah, that's true. I think you, you, you face your challenge and you kind of try and take control of the situation and approach it in a proactive way rather than sort of letting it come over you, I guess, in, in, in a sense. And that exactly. Makes, that makes perfect sense. And obviously, but you grew up in, in the US, right? You, you learned skiing in Lake Tahoe, is that right? I skied for the first time in Tahoe, yes, wow. correct. <laughs> One of my favorite places. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Where have you skied in Tahoe? I haven't. I've never skied in Tahoe. I've stayed there and I've spent time around there and I've flown over the uh, over the lake bit uh, in beautiful uh, Sierra snow-capped uh, season. It's absolutely stunning. I've never skied in Tahoe, but it's such a beautiful area. Um, and, and I can't wait to try it. I think next year we're, we're actually going to, to Park City, Utah in January. Um, which oh, is yes. actually going to be my first actual sort of skiing experience in the US. Um, we were so close. I and mean, when I got this job, I, we were meant to go to Vail and I had to cancel it last minute because obviously I had quite the job change. So we, we decided it's <laughs> not a good idea to go 10 days to Vail. And it's probably a good thing because I ended up would have ended up bankrupt, I think, after that trip. So <laughs> what's Tahoe like? What, what, what's that like? Is that still an area you ski today and you enjoy? Or? Tahoe is beautiful. I mean, there are just so many amazing options there. There's the lake, of course, which you can see while you're skiing yeah. at Heavenly. 
Um, but there's also North Star, which is where I grew up. And they had an incredible terrain park when I was little. And I remember watching Dutour, which is one of the bigger competitions. But um, I remember watching that when I was, I don't know, maybe nine or 10, when I was at the, on the ski team there at North Star. And I remember thinking the jumps were huge and the competitors were so professional. There's no way that I would, you know, be able to do that, which as a nine-year-old, fair enough. But I think that that having that environment really showed me what was possible and it was really exciting. And more than anything, I joined the ski team there. And so having that group of kids to push me and to push them back allowed us to create growth within the team. So I would do a trick and then all of a sudden everybody had to do the trick and then someone else would do the trick and then all of us would have to learn it too. And so having that internal competition was really healthy and really fun. So that really made me fall in love with the sport. But you literally came from sort of country cross running into directly freestyle skiing or did you do a bit of sort of downhill racing and and, and traditional skiing as it were as well? No, I never did any never, of, just straight into any the other job. kinds of skiing. Yeah. Cool. So as we always have these rules, you know, in Europe, they always tell us, no, no, first you have to do 16 years of, you know, good old fashioned oh, ski training. Oh, you're also training. proper. Yeah, you're also before, proper. <laughs> before you get to ride a snowboard. I think I said something very similar to my kids. So I have to, because they're obviously the same thing. Like once you're sort of in an area where you see a lot of snowboarding going on, the kids just don't want to go to ski school anymore. They're like, no, no, get me on the board. And we're like, no, no, <laughs> learn it properly on two skis first. But I, I guess that, you know, it, and you didn't have a sort of trampoline gymnastics anything like that or how did you discover this whole idea of of, of freestyle no I had no kind of background with that at all um it happened because my mom really liked skiing and so Mm. she put me into a ski school when I was three just um on the weekends when she wanted to go skiing she would kind of dump me on the side because I was too slow and she didn't want to have to teach me so I started there and then as I got better I slowly started to increase in speed until I was kind of straight lining from the top of the mountain. Mm. So, you know, that's the real proper way. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent agree. I mean, sometimes there, there are certain inclines in Europe where you have to kind of start thinking about doing a turn, but most of the time I'm, I'm fully with you. So, <laughs> But yes, so a little bit too fast and maybe that was the adrenaline addict in me. But my mom kind of thought that it was too dangerous for me mm. to join a race team because the whole concept of racing is speed. And if she thought that I was already putting myself in danger by going too fast, then it seemed counterintuitive to allow me to go even faster. So the alternative was free skiing and she didn't know what it was, but she knew that it was not racing. Sounded good. So, you know, (laughs) that's what we did. It must be slow and safe, right? Yeah. (laughs) And she came to your first competition and went like, oh dear, what have I agreed to? Exactly. (laughs) You're going to go over sure. that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure those were her exact words, yes. <laughs> now, you grew up in the US, but obviously you're competing in Beijing for China, right? So where's your, you're sort of really proper sort of both or in between or more American America, Chinese in China? How, how do you see yourself? Yes, all of the above. I think that being fully one amalgamate into one culture yeah means being that culture. And so what I mean by that is if I'm able to go to China and Mm. if I'm able to completely understand the culture, if I'm fluently able to speak Mandarin, if I have friends there and if I meet a stranger and I can, you know, 
be as any other person who grew up and lived in China their whole lives can be, then I am Chinese. And if the same thing applies in the U.S., then I am American. And I think that nobody can deny that I am Chinese. And nobody can deny that I'm American. We have a practical test. Do you know what IWC is in in Chinese, in Mandarin? Is it not? (laughs) International watch <laughs> <No>. company. <laughs> See, we have to ask both things. What, what, what's it in the US and what's it in China? <laughs> then we know the amalgamation. No, I see my, my, my Mandarin obviously is absolutely terrible, but it's supposed to be the, the watch of many countries, which is something like Wen Guo Biao, something like that. Oh, Wen Guo Biao. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds much more convincing than mine. And as I learned the other day, in certain areas of the US, we're now called the IDUB. So there you are. So that's Ooh, <laughs> you're getting nicknames now, are we? Nicknames. Uh, I think you can wrap that. I think that's the, 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 clear, the clear benefit of the IDUB. That's my next project. You can beatbox and I will rap. Okay. Yeah. Or would you like the other way around? No, I no, can, please not. I can bend to your <laughs> wishes, please. But I, actually, do you, do you rap? No, but I can. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Always up for a challenge. Multifaceted you know. and many talented. So what else are you up to? I, I mean, I hear you're, you're, you're off to Stanford, which is obviously amazing. Uh, Jelly's yes, point number I'm, three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really excited. Um, I start next fall. I'm currently in my gap year, but I applied last year. So I applied early and was just putting all my eggs in this basket and hoping that I wouldn't have to apply anywhere else. And Mm. that's exactly what happened. So I got in and I was notified in December. And then since then I have been on a gap year and we'll start next fall. So I'm super, super excited. Um, I have always really wanted to go to Stanford partially because my mom went there for business school and partially because when I was five or six, I asked my mom, Hey mom, what's the hardest college to get into? Yeah. And she said, Stanford. And I said, okay, I want to go there. there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of in my little, like, I want to do it because it's hard mindset. You know, I feel like if you think about the Olympics, why are the Olympics such a big deal? Yeah. Because it's the epitome of all sports and every country, every athlete, that is the culmination of their major careers. And so you want to do it because it's hard. So, I mean, hey, I wanted to go to Stanford because it was hard. But then, you know, obviously I went into the whole process and I got to tour the campus. I got to look into the actual classes and, of course, fell in love with much more than its acceptance than just rate. The label. That's it. That's, it. That's uh, <laughs> vitally important, I think, for this thing to go well. And I, I had a similar sort of experience, I think, when I was three or four years old, I asked my mom, what is sort of a job that pays well? What should I do so that I can have a good life? And she just spontaneously said to me, pharmacist. So I actually, what? yeah, and I actually stuck with that almost all the way to university. So I did all my, my sort of part-time uh, jobs uh, at school, working in a pharmacy. But interestingly, they put me onto visual merchandising and window decoration rather quickly, pulled me off the meds and like, no, no, you do the windows, you're better at that. So that should have given me an inclination already where this whole thing was going to go. But I actually applied to, to, uh, to uh, Cambridge University for Natural Sciences as well. And I actually was going to go through with it until... One day I realized that I'm really designing all day and really not that much into natural sciences. And maybe I should rethink the whole plan. And this is how we ended up here. (laughs) 
but it's, 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 it's good to have these kind of early uh, goals of sort of ultimate achievement and then to tick them all off by the age of uh, 18, 19 is, is, is obviously not bad at all. Good going. Thank you. I mean, hey, every path is very different. And I think that I learn a lot from my successes and also from my failures. So maybe I could have tried to be a pharmacist as well. And maybe something else would have turned me towards skiing. Maybe destiny does exist. You never know. Definitely. I I do think so sometimes because, you know, when I, when I look back, I, I think a lot of things that I didn't realize were happening for a specific reason or had a specific function later on. You only understand what that was for, like sometimes many years later. And you look back and think, ah, actually now looking back, it makes a lot of sense. So I, I do think there is an element of that. Definitely. Totally. I love that. I love that. So you and watchmaking. Here we go. This is something I've, something I've got to ask. Oh, yes. Speaking you, of destiny, my new niche. Your new niche, definitely. So mechanical watches and watchmaking. Do you have a, I mean, is there something sort of in your uh, story and journey where you've had any contact points with our industry, with watches, you know, mums, dads, somebody where, where you've come across a mechanical watch before? Totally. I mean, Wow. Well, in terms of watches in general, in terms of time, how about that? Yeah, that's a I very good one. I have always been so fascinated by time. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I, I journal a lot. Yeah. And I have been for many, many years. And I intend to publish it at some point as some form of, I don't know, maybe a biogra- autobiography or maybe mm. as a memoir. We don't know. But anyways, it goes way back. And one of my first entries was about the concept of infinity and growing older and what time means in the scale of human life. Right, okay. <laughs> I think I was like seven. You do like to like jump I, into the deep end. Huh? I, was, I <laughs> could not even spell half of the words, but I was so Cosmology invested. for dummies. Broken down. Yes. <laughs> string theory. Literally. Age seven. String, th- string theory. Stop. <laughs> I literally was listening to a lecture about that yesterday. Um, yes. But I mean, yeah, it was always something that really occurred to me because I was I was always very aware that I was young when I was young. Maybe that was because I was the youngest in my class when I was in my K through eight school. And now I'm the youngest on the World Cup circuit. And I'm just constantly surrounded by people who are saying, wow, you're so young. You have time. But I'm like, time for what? Like, Am I, uh, is there something that's coming that I don't know? Like, am I supposed to be preparing for something? Is something supposed to happen to me? Am I supposed to do something? Yeah. And this whole concept of you have time. And I think that that's so interesting because it implies that the speaker doesn't have time. But then maybe an 80-year-old would come over and say to the person who was saying to me, oh, you're so young, you have time. And I think that everybody has the same amount of hours in a day, but how you choose to spend it matters. So all this just goes back to these interesting thought processes that I've had about time for, well, for a long time. Um, But ever since I was little, yeah, I've always considered this. And then as I grew older um, and I started running, you know, time was very important. A few seconds, a few seconds was, you know, everything between a broken dream or a new personal record. So. I think that I became very aware of relative time because suddenly I was thinking, okay, I have this long until, for example, when I was getting 
physiotherapy massages for my sore muscles. Man, those massages hurt really bad. Yeah, and I would look at the clock on the wall and I think, okay, I only have 20 more minutes of this excruciating pain. And then I'd think, okay, but 20 minutes is a really long time because I can run a 5k in that amount of time. But then suddenly when I'm in class or when I'm skiing or I'm doing something that's really fun, I'd be thinking, okay, I have 20 minutes. That's a long time, right? And then a blink of an eye and suddenly it's over. But then when I'm running a race, it feels like it's 10 years. So it's so interesting to see how time can speed up and slow down um, depending on your focus level and depending on the little details that you notice in that moment and all the sensations that you can pin down in your body in three seconds versus in you know 10 minutes. So time is something that I could talk about forever, but mm. it's something that I've been aware of for a while as well. And so going back to watches, I mean, yeah, having something that can delicately and artistically encapsulate such a conceptual idea, I think is really beautiful. Wow, <laughs> I got a whole different level here. But co conceptually speaking, like where where do you experience time moving the painfully slowest out of any situation you can think of? This is an interesting situation. Um, there, for example, at the end of a race when you're running, you're exhausted. It feels like everything is slow motion. It feels mm. like that finish line is never going to arrive. Right. It, in that moment, it feels like time is the slowest it can ever be. But if you put a clock next to the finish line and you're watching the clock move, suddenly time is moving really, really fast because you're thinking, oh, you know, if I can make it to the line in 10 seconds, then I'll PR. And you're watching the clock move and suddenly it's 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You're like, no, I haven't had time to make it. You know, Time running so out runs fast. It's so interesting. It is all about perspective. It really is. I always think immigration queues at airport. <laughs> That's got to be one of the situations hey, where that you is think you've so been there legit. for four hours and it's probably like 25 minutes. And I, I could swear, <laughs> if, you, if you took my watch off me and asked me afterwards, I'd be like, yeah, that was like two hours straight. <laughs> so valid. Any line, really. Yeah. Roller coaster lines also take a long oh, time because yes. you like watch the other people going and you get really excited and then that anticipation slowly fizzles yeah. out as you watch it like the hundredth time. So I made a capital mistake in 2019 and took my family to Disney during spring break. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you know exactly there what I'm talking about then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know exactly. There isn't a fast pass in the world that would have been fast enough. So, <laughs> so basically, what, you know, and afterwards I was, I was quite sort of blown. Have you been to Disney? Have you been to, um, to Florida? Um, I, I think I have in Florida when I was younger. I'm a big Six Flags queen. Oh, okay. Oh, I because I, I don't go exactly. You go I don't go for the thrill. for the aesthetic. Yeah. I go for the for the rides. Okay. I do the flips. So speaking of fast passes, yeah, I went to Six Flags and got one of the fast passes where you can book ahead of time and like mm. skip the line. Yeah. So I was doing that and I think I rode Medusa, which is the name of like yeah, their yeah, yeah. biggest, scariest ride, fifty seven times. Wow. In a row. <laughs> okay, I think I'm, I'm starting to get a picture, and 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 you were slightly bored probably <laughs> during that experience. <laughs> I, you know, I experimented. I I had the first row, I had the last row, I had 
hands up out. from the beginning. Yeah. I had exactly, I you know, silly face <laughs> timing for the photo <laughs> op, you know. I knew all the photo spots by the end. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. FaceTiming your mum, all the things you do instead of a Medusa. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, though, I was, what was really scary is um, when we were talking about Six Flags, I went to the um, abandoned Six Flags in New Orleans um, after Hurricane Katrina um, when they shut, basically got flooded for like a, a best part of a year. And they, they filmed a lot of movies in, in that basically Six Flags parking lot afterwards. And while you're in there filming, you can basically just have a walk around like this abandoned theme park and talking about sort of uh, urban exploration and all this abandoned stuff. That is eerie, huh? You wouldn't want to do that in the middle of the night in a full moon. Night. Oh my God. I am um, so scary. You know how Six Flags, they do the Halloween fest? Yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And then yeah. it's really scary because they they do really good costume makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And they sneak up on you. I went with my mom a few years ago and I was like, oh mom, like we're gonna go, it's gonna be really fun. She's like, No, like if you get scared, you're gonna, you know, I'm not gonna protect you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, No, like I don't worry. I really wanna go. Please, 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 let's go. And then she's like, Okay, fine. We go. The first time we get ambushed by these scary people, she pushes me in front of her. She's like, take <laughs> you go. her and runs in the opposite <laughs> direction. I'm like, wow, so much for protecting me. Thanks. Like, I guess you lived up to your word. Yeah, you weren't going to protect me. You weren't kidding when you said that. Like, wow. <laughs> I remember I tried to get me, you know, my son, my, my oldest son, it's sort of got quite nervous of these kind of haunted house situations. And I think we were in uh, Thorpe Park in the UK, which is sort of a Six Flags equivalent. And I tried to motivate him to go into this sort of very mild version of a haunted house. And literally, poor Vincent, he was laying flat on the floor, clinging on to one of those metal poles outside. And he just <laughs> wouldn't let go. He wouldn't go even 20 meter within sort of the, the front door of this place. Absolutely, totally. No! terrorized <laughs> so what, what's your runner plan now you've got 100 days to go to beijing how, how does prep time look from here on in you do a couple more competitions i suppose in the run-up now a couple of training camps yeah so right now this training camp is a big one for me um it goes until november 21st wow but it also includes a world cup so this is going to be my first world cup of the season um it is a slow style world cup and mm. I'm I'm pretty excited. I, I generally like this course. And then the season becomes super hectic. Because of COVID last year, a lot of the contests ended up getting canceled. Yeah. And that means that a lot of people didn't have an opportunity to get the points or the spots or whatever qualification criteria they needed in order to make their country's Olympic team. So that meant that FIS, um, the governing governing body of skiing, decided to put a lot of competitions into this competition year in order to give everybody enough chances to qualify. So as someone who competes in all three disciplines, it is a lot. The good news is because I'm already qualified, I technically have the opportunity to skip out on some, mm. which I will probably not do every single one of them because it, at some point it's actually not possible because they overlap. But um, in general, I, I want to do as many as possible because I think it's good competition experience for one. And then two, it's good training because the courses are good in competition. Yeah, absolutely. No, and obviously we we are you know more than thrilled to to have you with us uh, to to be representing uh, IWC and IWC racing in a, in a small part also during the build up and then Beijing Olympics. What are you wearing at the moment, watch wise? I have the Portofino. It's like the one with the red band, which I really like. Yeah, um, and it has the ones, yeah. little diamonds around yeah. the face. Yeah. 
red is my favorite color. Love it. It's kind of my power color. And I really love it because it's feminine and it's fun, but it's, it's functional and it's easily red. It's not yeah. overly bedazzled. You know what I mean? It's yeah, understated, yeah. which I love. Yeah. Just to say, you know, I was super excited um, to have you as part of the IWC family. Um, we're totally rooting for you, wishing you all the best in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics. And of course, much success at these very, very unique games. Uh, you know, what an opportunity for you. I was super, super excited. And when we're going to end up on this, this uh, I've been told to stick more to the script in the season. I'm going to try and do that. So we have a couple of standard questions that we're going to ask every single guest we have. And I'm going to quick fire them at you and just sort of quick fire answer back and we see what comes out. So if you could describe yourself in three words, what would they be? Ambitious, optimistic, spontaneous. That sounds very good. For what in your life would you have like to more, have more time? Sleep. Sleep. But I already sleep 10 hours a night. And finally? But more, more, more. more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. If you do exercising all day, definitely more than 10 hours a night. Um, and do, do you remember what your first ever watch was, if you've had one? It was a small, waterproof, light-up, glow-in-the-dark, plastic watch. For oh, Halloween. That's a lot of adjectives. <laughs> um, when I was in fifth grade. And I had it until I was in eighth grade. And that watch did a lot for me because it was light up. So I was scared of the dark sometimes. And, you know, that one really came through there. And then also when I started running, it was my first timing capability. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that watch. Brilliant. And that's that's obviously, you know, I think I love the versatility. What we covered today, you're basically the, the only person I know who can probably do a switch corkscrew 1440 whilst explaining string theory for your future journal and being dressed up in a scary outfit for Halloween with the glow in the dark watch. <laughs> <laughs> what a combination. You are truly a multifaceted and multi-talented lady. And I'm so, so, so excited to, to, to have you on the team for IWC. Thank you so much. It's been a blast. Uh, next time we probably do do this live on a roller coaster somewhere in the Six Flags. <laughs> but Sounds good. Then, hey, as long as it's not in the dark, because then I'll get no, scared. But if it, the, if it's during Halloween and if there's scary people dressed up, then I'm all good. Absolutely. As long as it's not in the dark. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. That was my chat with Eileen Gu, and I'm sure you'll agree, an absolutely inspirational young athlete. Now, over the coming months, culminating into Beijing. We're going to hear a lot more from Eileen, I'm sure. And of course, we and everybody at IWC wish her all the best for her Olympic campaign. That's it for today's episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with an episode hosted by my partner in crime co-host, Paul Ripke, who'll be having an interesting guest from IWC here, giving you a deeper insight into the tour of our manufacturing center here in Schaffhausen. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy. Speak to you again next time. Bye for now. 